Well, hello everybody at Mafra Community Church. Uh, greetings. Uh, good to be back with you again. And uh, I trust that you're going okay during these lockdown days. Uh, it will be good when we're all back together again. But we're continuing our series on the book of Acts. And so uh, it'd be great if you've uh, had a look at Deuteronomy 6, 16 to 19, and also Psalm 5, which are passages which lie behind what is uh, speak- we, we, we're reading about today. But we'll read Acts uh, 4.32 to 5.11 in a moment, but let's pray first of all. Uh, Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the treasures of your word. We thank you for this uh, account of the earliest days of the activities of the followers of the Lord Jesus in the power of his Holy Spirit and seeking the glory of his name. And we pray that at this far distance and at this uh, great distance uh, in time and, and space from where the gospel message began, we pray that you would help us to learn lessons today. Um, about uh, what it means to be a responsible, loving Christian community and also uh, help us to learn lessons in reverse from the bad example we see here today so that we'd be careful with our speech and and careful of our behaviour if ever we draw attention to ourselves. So please uh, renew us in our love for you and our desire to live holy lives before you, we pray. Uh, And we ask all these things for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and for the building up of his church. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32 and then reading down to chapter 5, verse 11. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Actually, I'm going to start that again, right? Can we cut that? Okay. Now, before we get to Acts chapter 4, we need to have a bit of a quick look back at Acts chapter 2. Now, I've spoken before about how Luke, who announces that he's a careful historian who writes everything out in a very systematic and orderly way, uh, he puts in these gospel summaries. So you can see when you get to the end of a section because there's a summary and it usually tells us a little bit about what's been happening and then it tells us that the Lord's hand is moving and, and uh, the church is growing. So back in Acts chapter 2, uh, at verse 43, we read that all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So we've seen in the last few sermons uh, the sign that was the healing of the lame man and then the preaching of Peter and the braveness of Peter and John uh, and then how they were ill-treated by the authorities. Uh, And so that's an example, one example of a sign that was done, a miraculous sign. Um, And as a result of that sign and as a result of the courage of Peter and John and as as a result of the preaching, uh, the the church grew. Uh, The gospel reached further out because the book of Acts is all about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach through his servants, the apostles. But into Acts chapter 2 verse 44, we read that all believed and were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then down to verse 47, they were praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So there's this gospel summary. Well, that favour with all people very soon came to an abrupt end because just as soon as Peter and John have healed the, the man and, and, and preached about it, then the authorities summon them and say, what's going on? We can't have you preaching in the name of Jesus in here. And so that's the first threat. So you can say that, this, that those first couple of chapters are like the honeymoon phase of the, the Jesus movement, but it's anything but a honeymoon from now on. We'll see progress always in relation to threat. 
And so the first threat is physical opposition from the outside, from the Jewish religious authorities. And uh, when they're thinking about all this, they, they liken it to Psalm 2 and how the kings of the earth have taken their stand against the Lord and his anointed. So the opposition is external, but it's, it's coming full force to Jesus' followers. But now we see in, uh, in this latter part of chapter 4 um, an, ex- an example of the community life of these earliest believers in the Lord Jesus, how they were sharing possessions, how they were providing for each other. And in, in chapter 4, verse 32 and onwards, we see the second big threat to the community life and to the progress of the gospel. It's not external, it's internal. It's from within the community of believers but it's a spiritual threat too because its source is Satan. So the gospel is at risk. The gospel, the advance of the kingdom of God through the preaching of Jesus is uh, is under threat. This is a very interesting thing because uh, Luke is a careful historian, but he's not an uncritical one. He's not what you'd call a celebratory historian. He's prepared to tell the story warts and all. And so there's great characters like Peter and their courage, Peter and John and these ones, but then there's terrible failures like Ananias and Sapphira, and they're not airbrushed out of the picture. They're dealt with, and we can learn from it. So let's read Acts chapter 4, 32 to chapter 5, 11, and we read there these words. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came as they came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church 
and upon all who heard of these things. So, at uh, chapter thirty, uh, chapter four, verse thirty-two, we see the setting for this story, um, and its picture is one of an ideal Christian community, or is it an ideal Christian community? Well, there's a very strong contrast. There's a before shot, and then there's an after shot. So verse 32, we learn something of the community's character. We've already seen this. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. We've already seen in chapter 2 that they were selling their goods and making sure that everybody was well looked after materially. But now we read now the full number of those who were believe, who believed were of one heart and one soul. So they're united by the Holy Spirit. And that union in the Holy Spirit, where they've each been filled with the Spirit, where they've each come to acknowledge the Lord Jesus as their their master, their saviour, the one who redeemed them uh, by his death on the cross, those things have combined to make them generous. And so as a result of being one in heart and soul, they didn't regard the things that they owned as belonging only to them. They regarded them as common property. Everyone had everything in common. Now that was a characteristic of the earliest days of the Christian church, the Christian movement. Of course, they're not yet called Christians, but we'll use that as a term just because it's easily understood. But um, in the very earliest days, you know, the Christian movement took a hold in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, by and large, was pretty hostile to being a Christian. It was a difficult environment in which the other uh, church took root and grew. Uh, but Tertullian was one of the earliest great Christian thinkers and writers, and he wrote a book uh, of apologetics, uh, defending the faith against the attacks from pagans and from Jews. And one of his defences was the, the difference that the gospel had made to the lives of people. And so he recorded a typical comment that others would say of the Christians. And they say, look how they love one another. And then he went on and he said, for they themselves hate one another. That was the characteristic of, of Roman society and how they're ready to die for each other. That's the Christians, for they themselves are ready to kill each other. Christians were known by their love. Jesus, just as Jesus had said they ought to be. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Well, this love is working itself out in this community of believers in, in Jerusalem where they're sharing it with each other. And so down to verse 33, and we see the community's powerful message. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So the message of the gospel that's just summarised here is the resurrection. Uh, the people of Jerusalem knew what had happened to Jesus. They knew that he'd been killed. But the message that the earliest preachers had was that he'd been raised from the dead. And not only that, he was alive. He's proclaimed as being alive and he's been proclaimed as being the one in whose name these deeds are being done. It's him who's the cause of them. And that message is now bearing fruit in changed lives. It's leading to this unity of the spirit but it's leading them to think about the poor in their community and how they can help them and how they've got an obligation to do it. Now, there's no suggestion in the text here that becoming a believer made you sell your house and your land straight away like that. Um, the people that we're told uh, who did these things um, were probably landlords. They were probably people who had more than one house or who had more than one field. Um, if they all sold up, if it was a condition of entry to the infant 
uh, Christian community that they sold up everything they had, then poverty would have come on them pretty quick smart, probably. But a little later in chapter 12, we read that after Peter was released from yet another spell in prison, he went to Mary's house. Clearly, she still had a house for Peter to go to. And of course, in the earliest days, churches met in houses. So they didn't all get rid of their property. It was those who were able to, according to the need of the uh, of the community. But the proceeds didn't go directly to the poor. They were placed at the apostles' feet. Now, that's a stroke of genius, because what it meant was that the rich weren't then able to look down on the poor and the poor didn't feel that they owed an overwhelming burden of debt or duty to the rich. They gave it to the apostles and the apostles determined the need and then with the funds that were available, they met those needs. So verses 36 to 37, we see a case study of the community. It's the first case study. There's two, in fact but it's the first one, and it's a good case study. So this infant community, an ideal community it looks like at the moment, uh, the first representative example, we've had one representative example of a sign, that was the healing of uh, of the lame man. Now we get a representative sample of this community habit of selling what you own so that you can look after others. And so it's a man that is known to us as Barnabas. His real name was Joseph. He had a second name, as so many people did. We told a bit about him. Uh, something of his background. He was Jewish. He was a Levite. He lived in Cyprus, but he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and did what the others were doing, laid it at the apostles' feet. So he's a good example. Barnabas is known as the son of encouragement. This is our first introduction to him. We read about him as the uh, the book of Acts unfolds. It's one of Luke's habits to introduce important characters and have a bit of a break and talk about other people. Then they turn up again a bit later on. Watch how that happens uh, quite a few times throughout the book. So Barnabas is a a good example of the community at work. But then into chapter 5, we get the second case study. But now we've got a real threat to this apparently ideal community, and it's a a satanic threat. And the threat is dealt with fearsomely. And so a man called Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, They got in on the act. They sold a piece of property. Now, they both knew about it. We're told there in verse 2 that his wife knew it. Uh, But unlike the others, it seems, they held back some of the funds for themselves. They only brought a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said to Ananias, he identifies the source of this sin. He says it's satanic. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Peter goes on and he says, you didn't have to do it. In verse 4 he says, you know, it was, it was your land. You could do with it what you wanted. And when you sold it, the money was free to do with as you wanted. You didn't have to bring it all. You could have bought some of it. But Ananias and Sapphira's sin was that they let the community believe that they had been as generous as the others, that they had brought all that they made and deposited it all, but they didn't. They withheld some. There would have been nothing wrong with that if they were honest about it, but they weren't. They'd been deceivers. And so there's a real contrast here. Satan is at work in the lives of people that have begun to identify as part of this new Jesus movement. Now, we we know that 
Jesus tells us in John chapter 8 that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Um, but that doesn't absolve Ananias and Sapphira of their guilt. So you will occasionally hear people say, oh, the devil made me do it. I read a story the other day of a man who had uh, behaved really very irresponsibly um, and had killed several people. And he, uh, he went to court and his plea was, he didn't disagree that he killed anybody, but his plea was, well, I was high on ice at the time and I wasn't really responsible for my actions. So people are always looking to excuse themselves. Sometimes people will say, oh, the devil made me do it. Well, the devil may have had some part in Ananias and Sapphira's behaviour, but that doesn't let them off the hook. And so just like Judas, because this is a story that parallels Judas in many respects, we're told in Luke chapter 22, verse 3, that Satan entered into Judas and made him want the money more than his love for Jesus. We're told in Acts chapter 1 that with the money that he made for betraying Jesus, he went and bought a field, which is the opposite of what Barnabas has done. Barnabas sold a field, brought the money to the apostles. Judas sold a field, uh, bought a field, and there he went and hung himself. Satan entered into Judas. Satan has entered into Ananias and Sapphira. He's inspired this lie. The father of lies has inspired this deception. Ananias and Sapphira are guilty of building up, puffing up their own reputation by telling lies that would make people feel better about themselves. I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's a phenomenon of military imposters, of um, people who invent incredible stories about their military service and buy medals and participate in marches and sometimes even rise to quite high positions in organisations like the RSL until they're discovered. And uh, there's actually a website devoted to outing these people because it's so offensive to people who have had genuine military experience. Why do people tell lies? Why is it that people are so casual with the truth? Some people are inveterate lies. That's where we get this idea of con men, con people, you know, people that are just bent on taking other people down. There are some people who have, seem to have no concept of what they're doing as being wrong and perhaps they even believe the lie themselves. But these military imposters are quite prepared to go on marches with a chest full of, of medals, improbable numbers of medals sometimes. And they're, they're very quick to defend themselves. Why do they do it? Because they want a reputation that they've done nothing to earn. They want other people to think well of them when they really haven't justified it in reality. Ananias and Sapphira were presenting themselves as model members of the community by mimicking the behaviour of genuine Christians, genuine followers of Jesus, but wanting a reputation that they didn't deserve because they hadn't been as wholehearted as so many of the others. Ananias was punished instantly with death. Peter didn't kill him, God did. Peter was the one who pronounced a judgment. He used his apostolic authority, that's you can read about that in, uh, in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Jesus said that Peter and the disciples would have authority on earth and Peter's exercising that now. And in the same way that the Old Testament records the story of the instant execution of Nadab and Abihu, uh, the sons of Levi, uh, of, of Aaron in, uh, in Leviticus chapter 10, and in the same way as Joshua 7 records the instant execution of, 
of Achan for his sin of misleading the community of God's people. In the same way, uh, Ananias and Sapphira represent a new incursion, a new threat to the holiness of God's people that stems from deception, that stems from telling lies. Ananias is struck dead instantly. Well, in verses 7 to 11, we read that the deception and the judgment on it are both confirmed. So three hours later, Sapphira comes in. She didn't know what had happened to her husband. He's been taken out and buried. She didn't know. And Peter turns to her and says, well, did you sell the uh, the land for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. And so then Peter goes on and says, how have you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? So he's, he's exposed that this is a conspiracy. They've agreed that this is what they're going to do. She's as guilty as he is. Now, it's interesting because if she said, no, no, we didn't, she could have repented and she would have been spared the execution. But she went along with the deception. She was bent on going along with the lie. And she met the same fate as her husband Ananias had immediately. Verse 10, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And so she was taken out and buried as well. And we read there in verse 11, Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Great fear. Back in chapter 5, verse 5, we read, Great fear came upon all who heard it. Now that probably means outside of the church as well. But great fear came upon the whole church at the execution, the, 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 the death of Ananias and Sapphira by judgment. Peter charges Sapphira with putting the Lord to the test and uh, that's exactly what Israel was uh, charged with in Deuteronomy 6 back in the book of Exodus as they're coming out of of Egypt. In the book of Exodus, the people grumbled when they got to a place where there wasn't any water and they said, we want to go back to Egypt and Moses had to strike the rock and and water came out. But um, Moses says to the people, you're putting the Lord to the test. Putting the Lord to the test means doubting that God can do what he said he'll do. Now, in this instance, probably the doubt was, can God supply our needs materially? Others were putting their trust that God would enable them to be able to be generous with with their land sales and the money that came from it. But Ananias and Sapphira wanted the reputation of being generous, but they held back some for themselves, no doubt, because they didn't really trust God. They weren't real members of the community at all. But there's another lesson here, because you see, the thing is, If Ananias had died like that and if Sapphira had come in and remained alive, people could have just said it was a fluke. But when both of them die in identical circumstances, there's no doubt that this is an act of God. This is the the judgment of the God who we read about in Psalm 5. You're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. And so great fear came on the church. Now there's there's another interesting point theologically too that uh, in doing what he's done, Peter says that in the first instance you've you've lied to the Holy Spirit and then a little later he says you've lied to God which means that the Holy Spirit is God. This is an important little plank of evidence in the doctrine of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is not just a force. He's a person 
a person who is animating the life of the infant community of Jesus' people. But the Holy Spirit is God. And, and this uh, passage here is an important part of giving us that doctrine. So great fear results from these things. What we can say here is that church discipline has had two effects. It's led to church growth. So if you just cast your eyes down to chapter 5, verse 14, you'll see that multitudes of men and women were added to the number of those that followed Jesus. But in verse 13, we'll see that um, none of the rest dared join them. So some were deterred from joining. So the purity of the church had been preserved through an act of God where Peter identified this sin and God acted in judgment. Some were deterred from joining, but others were attracted to join. The purity of God's people will deter people and it will attract some, but it's non-negotiable. Now, what are some lessons that we can learn? Well, I think there's several and there's some very important things that come out, come out of this. And the first is to do with Christian giving. Now, some people have looked at this passage and said, well, that's how Christians need to live at all times in all places. They need to live in community. They need to make sure that they sell all their goods and they have everything in common. Well, you could do that if you wanted to. There's nothing to stop you doing that, but it's not essential. It's not an essential response to this because we've seen already that they didn't have to sell up. It was something that was free. It was uncoerced. It was a response to God's generous grace. They didn't have to tell how much money they'd given. Uh, Beware of any Christian organisation that mandates you disclose your income. That's the sign of a cult. Have nothing to do with it. Christian giving is to be free and it's to be uncoerced. It's a response to grace. Jesus says in Matthew 6, it should be secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. So Christian giving is free, it's, it's generous and it's secret. Now this passage is not anti-private property. It's not essential that when you become a Christian you sell everything you own. Uh, but other places in the Bible, Jesus and the apostles tell us that dying to ourself is essential. And so what that means is that everything we keep belongs to Jesus. We need to surrender it to Jesus. We need to be putting it to use for Jesus. We need to be less acquisitive. We need to have less attraction to the idols that the world regards as essential. We need to be careful that we're not laying up treasure on earth, as Jesus says, because it's where your treasure is there, your heart is also. We need to have an attitude that says, if there's a need in our community of believers, because our generosity has to start with the household of faith, Um, if we have a need in our community of believers and if we can do something to meet it, then we should. That's an act of genuine Christian generosity. Uh, It's what James calls living faith in James chapter 2. If we see a need and we can meet it, we should do so. If you see a need and you're not able to meet it materially, then pray. Uh, You you can't do more than than what you can do with the money that God's blessed you with. But there's another side of it too. If you are in need, don't become dependent on the generosity of others if you can do something about it. Um, so those who can support themselves ought to. That's a Christian principle. So Second, Second Thessalonians 3 speaks against laziness, people that have stopped working. First Timothy chapter 5 says that if, you have, if, if you're able to support your family but you fail to do so, then that, that's a very grievous sin. Um, 
It's a denial of the faith. So don't become addicted to others' generosity, but if you see someone who's genuinely in need, then do what you can to meet it. The Christian life is one that's lived in balance. Uh, we need to do what we can with God's help, but if there's others who are, who are failing, who are vulnerable, then we need to do what we can to help. So there's the first lesson. Christian generosity is a growth, an outgrowth of, of God's grace to us. The next thing is that church discipline matters. Uh, Peter uses the keys of his apostolic authority that we've seen already. Um, Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins. Now, no doubt, lying is a pretty common and garden sin. It's one of those ones that people take pretty lightly because everybody does it. Everybody is a little bit lightweight with the truth at times. You might well justify your behaviour by saying, well, who's going to know? Ananias and Sapphira could well have said, well, who's going to know? This is you know, bit no big deal. Um, people talk about victimless crimes but God knows and God cares he is always in the audience this sin is serious because it was a threat to church health and church holiness and it was a threat to the witness of the church because the church that was born in power on the day of Pentecost because of the presence and the activity of the Holy Spirit, we've seen already that there was, this is an activity of Satan working its way into the infant Christian community. Speech matters. The way we use our speech, there's so much about it. Read the book of Proverbs if you don't believe me. See how much uh, we're told there about sins of speech and about how to use speech well and how to use it badly. Jesus says don't touch. Don't take an oath. Matthew chapter 5, verse 36 and 37, he says, let what you say be simply yes or no. In other words, Christians need to be known as people of their word. Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Every careless word. There is an audience. God is listening. So that raises a question. Why doesn't God strike apparently Christian liars dead today? Why are our churches not finding people just struck dead all the time? Because, you know, it's pretty easy to, to tell a fib, isn't it? And uh, any honest person amongst us would have to say, well, there have been times. So why doesn't God still do this today? Well, in the same way that signs like the healing of the lame man at the temple... Uh, an indication of the breaking in of the kingdom of God and they're a foretaste of one day when there'll be no more lameness or blindness or deafness or anything that's the outgrowth of the fall in terms of its effect on humanity. As signs are a foretaste, so is the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. It's a very vivid example that God will honour his word, that the wicked can't stand in his presence and he will deal with it. And we've got this as an indication and it achieved its result in those days because fear came upon everybody. But one of the messages that we need to learn from the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament is just because God can do something doesn't mean he always will. He can heal, but he doesn't heal in every respect. He will judge, but his judgment is not always as immediate as we've seen in these uh, verses here. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
there will come a day. This is an instance of the day of judgment being brought into the immediate. That day of judgment is coming. And we needn't wonder about it. And we need to take this as a very vivid warning that that God cares about how we speak and he cares about the purity of his church. We can read elsewhere words that Peter later wrote to a community of believers far from Jerusalem. And he said in 2 Peter chapter 3 that uh, they're not to misunderstand the delay of God in, in sending the Lord Jesus back to the earth. He said very famously, with the, the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. But then he went on and said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Sapphira could have repented. She could have said, yeah, that I, we did that. We, did that. we, we sold it for a, a, a bigger amount and we kept some. She didn't. She played along with the lie. Ananias could have repented. He didn't. They were judged. God gives everyone the opportunity to repent when they hear the preaching of the gospel. The question is, will we choose to? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why doesn't God strike people dead for all these things? Because he's patient and he's giving everyone the opportunity to turn from their sin and to receive new life through the Lord Jesus Christ. We must do that while we have time. And when we've done it, we need to make sure that we live in harmony with other believers, generously for other believers, and, and with a real intention to preserve the, the, the unity of the spirit and the holiness of the church and the health of the church. These things are important. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these great words. And uh, it really is quite a challenge to us. So we pray that you would help us to take it on board. Father, I pray for everyone who hears these words that they would be careful with their speech, uh, to use their speech for building others up and for for glorifying you. Help us to be careful with with our commitment to truth. Help us to be careful too that we're committed to the unity of your people and, and the health of your church and help us to play every part that we can in that. And we pray that you would help us, you would motivate us out of love for the Lord Jesus, out of gratitude for all he's done. Help us to live lives of generosity where we seek to be materially and financially uh, generous to others as we see needs. Uh, we, we pray that you would help us in all these ways so that the kingdom might advance and so that our church would grow and that it would uh, that the kingdom of God would, would grow and progress in other parts of the world as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.